And amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. They ought to fall open there by now. It's a good place for it to fall open to. Whoops, mine missed. <laughs> of course, this is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We're going to pick up again on verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in the Father, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You, that's the Samaritans, worship what you do not know, because they had no covenant relationship with God. They had no revelation of who He was. And you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So the Jews know what they worship because they had the law. They had the, they had the written revelation of who God is, but they didn't have the experience of who God is. They didn't have the revelation in their life. But he goes on in verse 23, says, but there's a change coming. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at the fact that what true worship is, is what God is seeking after. He desires this. This is not something we come into on a Sunday morning and have to work Him up and stir Him up. God's been waiting for the opportunity. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. That God's waiting here every time we come together. We have our own personal worship, we have our own personal devotions, but when we come together as a corporate body, God is waiting here, waiting to do something, waiting for the time we come to worship Him because it's an interaction with Him. So He desires this. He desires this. God doesn't need, you know, you know He doesn't need up-tempo music to get Him going. God's ready. God's ready. And so that's important to understand. True worshipers will worship Him in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So true worshipers worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then he goes on in verse 24 to explain why. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must. That's so important to understand that. There's no other alternative. There's no other way. It's not, you know, this great recording artist's idea of worship. It's not this school that's being taught somewhere else where they have this worship conference. It's not what they think worship is. That may be their idea. It may be popular. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong. But true worship is what God says it is. So in order to be true worship, God says it must be in spirit and in truth. So we've spent time now looking at the in-spirit part of it and why, and it's right in there. He doesn't leave it for guesswork because he says in verse 24, because God is spirit. And we've spent quite a bit of time looking at what that means, that God is spirit. When you were born again, God put a new spirit in you that's born of him. That's what makes you his child. And then we saw God put his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, he put him in you also, fused together so that you can commune with him, spirit, your spirit to his spirit. You can't commune with God mind to mind. Because God's not a mind, he's a spirit. And so we've talked about that, especially from the point of view of this idea of koinonia, or fellowship, which has to do with having something in common with, being joined to something, and and communing and enjoying and experiencing that back and forth. And then last week we talked about the other aspect of why it is in spirit. 
Because what worship really is, worship is a response to who God is. It comes from the English word worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship, which means recognizing that something or someone else has a greater worth than you do. And when you recognize they have a greater worth than you do, it requires you to see them and their worth and then see yourself in relation to them. And because God is a spirit, the only way we can see what he's really like is if the Holy Spirit reveals him to us. So the second reason we've seen why it can only be in spirit, we'll talk about truth today, but in spirit is because it takes that your spirit is where you worship him and it's by the spirit that you get some understanding of him. Not with your mind, but down in here because it's a heart issue. Worship comes out of the heart or your spirit. And it's a response to his love for you. It's a response to seeing his majesty and his glory and all that he is. And that's what we've talked about over the last several weeks. Today we're going to move into the truth part. Because it's not just in spirit, it's in spirit and in truth. And he says in verse 24, in order to truly worship him, you must, no other possibility, worship him in spirit and in truth. Now what does that mean? Does it mean we must worship him sincerely? Well, obviously it does. Everything we do with God and with one another should be out of sincerity. But I want to show you it means so much more than that. So to do that, let's go where we, one place we went last week. Let's go over to Isaiah 6, chapter 6. We look there because it gave us a glimpse of what Isaiah's experience was and how he worshipped. Then last time we went into the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and we saw that the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the only way he could see these things was because he was in touch with his Spirit. And we may down the road talk a little bit more as how do I get in the Spirit? How does that happen? But I really felt led to get into this today. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So here we go again. What's going to happen is because he saw the Lord for who he is, God. Now, we don't know whether he was physically caught up there or this is in a vision, but all we know this is somehow, supernaturally, he's seeing in the Spirit, he's seeing God as God actually is. God came down on Mount Zion to appear to Moses But Moses didn't see him in all his glory. He asked to see him in all his glory, but God says, you can't see that and live. But God says, here's what I will do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, the opening in the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by you and you can see the back part of my glory. Now, Moses' appetite and desire to see God came as a result of spending time in God's presence, but not actually seeing him. There was a cloud because God had to mask who he really was in a cloud because if he appeared in all his glory, he'd have died. And so, but my point is that the times when people have seen images of God, it's either been as an angel as when Abraham saw the three men. It's God's come in some restricted form designed so that man could handle it. 
In one place he says, I didn't appear in my form because you would have made images of me. See, God knows us. But here God has brought, probably in the Spirit, in a vision or in the Spirit, Isaiah into his throne room. And this is what he saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or the, 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 the trail of his robe, filled the temple. And above it, the throne, stood seraphim. One on each, one had six, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We talked last week about they weren't doing this on cue. They weren't doing this because they had great screens up in heaven saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they had to read the lyrics. They weren't doing it because there was like an applause meter or a worship meter. They couldn't help it. When they saw what he was like without any restriction, they couldn't hold back because they saw his glory and his majesty and his holiness without any restriction. And Isaiah now is given a glimpse of this. And look at his reaction. Woe is me. For I am, un, I am a man of unclean lips. What was me? I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Isaiah was a very righteous man. But that's compared to other men. See, we tend to compare, do what Paul tells us not to do. We compare ourselves with ourselves or ourselves with one another. And it's just kind of human nature. So the people you know, especially maybe in a church, in church on Sunday, you know, you may have been going through the praise and worship here and you saw people with their eyes up and tears coming down. Said, oh, they're so spiritual. They know God so well. And then you look at yourself and say, oh, I'm a piece of trash. You know, I'm, you know, I'm never going to get there. Or you may be the person with the tears coming down and say, whoa, I'm really getting somewhere compared to them. But you see, God doesn't compare us with each other. He doesn't even compare you with you. He compares us with Him. And this verse is what got me saved. In the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Be ye holy as I am holy. See, my attitude is I was, didn't really need all that because I was pretty good. I basically didn't lie. I mean, I'm, I may have fudged a few things every once in a while but compared to the other lawyers I work with. <laughs> See, right away you lowered your expectation. Compared to other people, I mean, I didn't cheat on my wife, I didn't cheat on my taxes. You know, I thought I was a good person. And compared to a lot of people, I'm sure I was. So I was measuring me by other people around me. And especially by the family I grew up in. Because that was my goal, was to be more righteous, better, more godly than the background that I had around me. And when I looked at where my background was, I thought I was doing pretty well. And I just kind of assumed God did the same thing until I read that verse. And God, it says, you're to be holy. I said, okay, as I am holy. And I oh. And literally the words out of my mouth is, I can't do that 
and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. This is exactly what I said. If, if that's what you require, I need someone to save me. And then I heard my own words. And that's what opened me up to receive Christ. I had to see the need I had for him. And in order for God to use you, you have to see two things. In order to worship in truth, you have to see two things. You have to first of all see who he is and what he's like. His holiness, his majesty, his purity, his truth, his glory. And then you've got to see who you are compared to that. I'm not talking about the fact, I know we're new creatures in Christ. I know we're born again. I know we've got his nature in us. But we're not all acting according to our nature, that nature. We often have motives in our heart and other things that are going on that compared to him. And even if we could walk, even there was one man that walked on this earth who did walk perfectly, who never sinned. And that man, Jesus, when he compared himself to his father, said, because someone came up to him and said, good master, and he stopped him. He says, wait a minute. There's no one good in himself but my father. In other words, the goodness you see in me has come from him. So even though he was perfect in everything he did, he still was recognizing that my father's greater than I am. Even with his perfection. Because he recognized that even everything he was that was good came from his father. But here's the point. We have to see it. And we can't see it with these eyes because God doesn't exist in this realm that these eyes pick up. So it has to be picked up in the spirit. He's spiritually sensitive to it. And that's what we're going to talk about. So Isaiah, the pattern here is Isaiah gets a revelation of God and all his glory and majesty and all his holiness. And then he gets an, immediately looks at himself and says, whoa, I don't care how good every, I am compared to everybody else, but compared to him, I am a man of unclean lips and I am undone. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Now that he has seen that, notice what happens. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity has taken away, your sin has been purged. He had to see who he really was on his own, and once he saw what God, who God was, and once he saw who he was on his own, now he was in a position for God to clean him up. And then the next step is God commissions him to go and speak for him. And that's what's holding some of you up. We'll talk more about that next week. Because some of us are still have enough confidence in ourselves that we think we can go do God's work on our... We can, there's God and there, he, we're partners with him so God does his part and we do our part. And there's a part we play but we don't realize how we're dependent on him for everything. And God had to give Isaiah a revelation of who God was and of who he was before Isaiah was open to be cleansed in his mouth because he's going to now utter words on God's behalf. 
He's going to speak God's words to people that God cares for. And we'll see that more clearly next week. All right. Now, worship, again, is a response to seeing in your spirit who God really is in his glory. And you can't find that out with your mind. You can't go figure that out. You can only take the word of God, which God has given to us to reveal himself to us. God's given us two things to reveal himself, his word and his spirit. And you can take that word and meditate on it and deposit it in you. Then the, That's the raw material that the Holy Spirit uses to then light it up in you and show you who God is. And when you begin to see who God is, the next thing is to see who you are compared to him. And worship cannot help but come from you at that part. This is why I've taught you before. You can, there's three steps. There's Thanksgiving, praise, and worship. We'll talk more about that down the road. But you can choose as an act of your will anytime you want to give thanks to God. And I do it all the time. I just try to keep that Thanksgiving flowing. You can choose to praise Him whenever you want because praise is acknowledging the great things that He's done personally for you, for other people, and in the world. That you can do as an act of your will. But you cannot initiate on your own true worship. You can do the things that create the atmosphere because the Spirit has to bring you into it because He has to turn the light on so that you can get that momentary revelation of who God is. Now, there are things we can do to open the door so that that can happen. But we can't make that happen. So for that part, we're totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. But remember, we started this whole study by seeing how willing God is and how desire. So we don't have to knock on the door, open the door and say, Hey, God, I'm here. I want to worship you. No, he's encouraging us to do the things so that he can reveal himself to us. All right. So let's talk for a minute, or maybe two, about why truth is so important then. We've seen that the Spirit's responsibility in part is to reveal to us who God really is. But truth involves our being open. Now listen carefully. Truth involves our being open to receive what it is the Spirit wants to show us. I'm going to say that again because this is the critical part. Truth involves our being open to receive openly what it is the Holy Spirit wants to show us about God and then later about ourselves. So let's talk about the word truth for a minute because we all have an idea what truth is. You know, we all want to know, have, you know, some, I, they, my child told the truth, they didn't tell the truth, which is a lie. They told the truth, they didn't tell the truth. And so our idea of truth is there's something out there called truth and we measure what people say by that truth, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop by and help you, you know, get rid of the rest of the snow in your driveway tomorrow at 9 o'clock. You measure whether they told you the truth by whether they showed up to do it. So if they showed up to do it, yes, they told me the truth. If they don't show up, they didn't tell me the truth. Maybe reasons why they didn't, but that was not the truth, that they were going to do that. Okay. 
that's kind of what we understand by truth. But truth actually has a deeper foundation to it, which is important for what we're going to talk about. The Greek word is aletheia, A-L-E-I-T-H-E-A. Aletheia, you don't need to remember that. But other than this, what it essentially means is nothing hidden. Everything open and exposed. Remember the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, I think it's 25. It's so powerful, and you've heard me teach on it before. Having gone through this whole story of creation in the garden, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it ends by talking about this man and woman who had this perfect fellowship with God, perfect communion with God, perfect open worship with Him. And it says about them that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's not just talking about whether they had clothes on or not. The clothes have to do with the outer part of truth. But the inner part was also. Clothes, what do clothes do for us? They cover up the parts we don't want to other, have other people see. And that's wonderful. <laughs> pastor Sam, the founding pastor, used to say, keep America beautiful. <laughs> cover what needs to be covered. <laughs> But we also cover it for protection because if the idea... Remember, some of you may have had the dream, this dream, this dream that some people have of dreaming that you were in your fourth grade class making a presentation and then you realized, oops, there are no clothes on. And it creates this embarrassed, scary feeling because you're totally exposed. But that's not just true physically it's also true emotionally, spiritually, internally. Because the very same things we do physically to be presentable and to have people think well of us. So many of you, what clothes you put on the day, you wanted to make sure they looked just right because you wanted people to think well of you. And there's nothing wrong with that unless it becomes vanity. But there's nothing wrong with dressing up nice and as you can and, you know, presenting yourself well to God and to people because it's, it's a sign of respect. But you also do because you want people to think well of you. And as long as that's all you're doing, there's nothing wrong with that. But we also do that internally. And we'll talk about that next week. But we also do it with God because the word truth here or aletheia means nothing hidden or else means you seeing it just as it really is. Nothing held back. And again, in that garden, the way God created them originally, that's what it was. God appeared in all His glory. He didn't need to have a cloud. He didn't need to have, you know, thunder and lightning. He appeared exactly as He is. Face to face, He met with them. Because there was no sin. They were righteous as He was. But when they fell, when they sinned, when they took things in their own hands in chapter 3, the first thing they did was what? They hid from God and they began to cover themselves up because they were afraid now. And God could no longer appear to them as He was. And we spent a lot of time the end of last year tracing through the process by which God could begin to appear to people, His people. 
the tabernacle. We talked about the tabernacle, how God had to be come down on the top of the Ark of the Covenant and only a certain procedure they had to go through. Why? Because God couldn't reveal Himself in all His glory or they'd all died. And we talked about that. And now we come into the new covenant. We become children of God and we have now been made the righteousness of God and the way into the, into the presence of God has been opened. Hebrews 9 and 10 talks a lot about that. Through the blood, there's a, the, the, the way's been opened and we can come with boldness and confidence into the presence of God. So we can come. And God wants to reveal Himself as He is. That's the Spirit's job in part is to do that. But here's the problem. God wants to reveal Himself as He is. But every one of us has formed some kind of image of what God is like and who He is. Through your parents, through the schools you went through, through church or Sunday school or whatever you want, all of us have formed some kind of idea of what God is like, of who He is and of what He's like. And the problem is that that image that we have determines how much of who He really is we can receive. Some of you were raised in a family where, and I've had to overcome some of this, where you had somebody, authority in your life, and they ministered discipline but not in love. You may have, you may have an authority in your life that just wasn't there. You may have had a father that just wasn't there. But that gave you an image of God. Because God's pattern is this. God's plan, this is God's design for the family. Not where we are, just as Tony sang earlier. But where God's design is God created a man and then the woman, and He authorized them to engage in the physical act by which new life is created, children. Only in the context of the covenant of marriage. Why? In part, because God's plan was when that child was born, the ultimate purpose was for that child to form a relationship with God as creator and to carry out God's will for that child and develop an intimate relationship. But a three-month-old baby, a six-month-old baby, uh, a year-old baby, has no concept of God. But God's plan was through that loving covenant relationship between that man and that woman who had a relationship with God that that child would learn from that mother and then that father the two basic sides of God. The, the, the strong fatherly side and the nurturing, caring motherly side. Together working that out in a godly relationship. That child would learn acceptance. That child would learn security. In order to grow and mature, you need some basic things. You need, you need security. You need to know you're safe. You need to know that you're loved. And you need to know that you have value. And God's plan was for, that, for a couple to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Nurture is the caring, the, the, the loving, the security part. And the admonition is the direction and the training. That was God's plan. But with the majority of us, far majority of us, that's not what happened. 
But God's plan was by that, as that child grows and matures, they would have an image of a father. They would have an image of a loving father and mother who cared for them, who disciplined them, trained them, but because they loved them and believed in them, and it would be a very easy transfer over to transfer that to their heavenly father. Which is why Satan works so hard to destroy the families. Because if he can disrupt that, then what he's going to plant in those children is a distorted image of what God their father is like. And such were many of us. But the reality is we come to Christ now. We, we, we read what, that he loves us, that he wants the spirit of God is in us, that God wants to reveal himself to us. And when we go to pray, when we go to... Just going to pray will trigger that image you have. Because that's who you're praying to. You're praying to the one that you have an image of what he's like. So that, that automatically prejudices you to whether or not he's listening. And here's the challenge. If worship is to respond to who God is and I have a distorted image of who he is, I'm going to respond to the image I have, not who he really is. Everybody following me? All right. Okay. So the word truth means the ability or the willingness that I have to change my image to line up with what he really is like. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. Because see, what we do is we assume what we picture is the truth. And it's not. So we've got to be willing to change our image to match the reality of what he's really like. And in most cases, we we limit severely what he can do in our lives because we're, we're relating to an image of a God and he's very limited in terms of what he cares, what he can do, whether he's listening. We're limited because we're worshiping and praying to a God that's not the real fullness of who God really is. Which is why we spent so much time last year studying on Wednesday nights how to renew our mind because it's in the process of renewing your mind, one of the most important things is to renew your mind to what, who God really is and what He's really like. But the Spirit's job, one of His jobs is to reveal who God really is and His glory, His majesty to us, but He can't do it He can only do it to the extent that we're open to let go of the old images. And that's where truth comes in. Truth means nothing hidden from God's side or our side. Well, God's not hiding anything, but our image of Him restricts it. Let me show you some examples of this. So truth means nothing hidden. First, we're talking about is our openness to see God as He really is. But to see Him, we have to be open to the truth of who He really is and what He's really like. The Word talks about Him and refers to aspects about Him that are out beyond what we understand. And I'll just give you a couple of references. 
Ephesians 3.17 talks about that, that, that to be strengthened with God in the inner man, with Christ, by the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know together with all those saints, the breadth and length and height, of the, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding, that goes beyond the understanding that we have. Ephesians, uh, Philippians 4, 17 says that instead of being anxious for things, we should make our requests known to God. And the assumption, therefore, is He's listening. And He's going to take care of whatever you are anxious about. And it says if you do that, then the peace of God that passes understanding. And there are others that tell us that there are aspects of God that are so far beyond our mind's ability to grasp and understand and God's Spirit wants to reveal that to us. But we've got to be willing to let go of the images and deal in the truth of who God really is. Okay. Some of these images come from the outside. From, in some cases, it's just pictures we grew up with on the wall. Or maybe a statue that you grew up with in your family. A picture of Jesus, you know, with the lamb over his shoulder. And that's the image you have, so that's kind of what you pray to. You may not consciously stand in front of the picture, but that image has been formed in your mind. All of us have some image of who he is and what he's like. And that's who we relate to. Some cases it was by teachers, and most cases it was not accurate or even close to accurate. The problem is that being human beings, the problem is that these being man-made keep us from truly knowing Him. Mark chapter 7. We've got time to go there. And this applies to not just worship. It applies to our whole relationship. And here Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, Mark chapter 7. We'll start in verse 6. They were, getting, they were saying, look, you, you, know, you don't keep the laws. You don't wash your hands at the right time, not hygienically, but for the ritual washing. They're talking to the Son of God and telling the Son of God you're not doing things right. He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is somebody that presents one image when their truth is really something else. We'll talk about that next week. This people honors me with my lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, he's talking about worship. In vain do they worship me. Why? Teachings as doctrines, truth, the commandments of men. So you're worshiping. God says, you worship me in vain because what you teach about me is your idea, not who I am. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of man. Traditions are man-made ideas or images of who God is like and what God requires. He says, you lay aside what God said, the word we heard today. You lay aside God's words who tells you who He is and what He requires, and you put in place of there what your words of who God is and what He requires. Now, what, what happens when you do that? All too well, verse 9, you reject 
you reject or set aside the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Then he goes through an example of Moses saying, honor your father and mother, and he says, you've replaced that with another rule that says it's okay sometimes to take what was due your mother and father and give it to God, when in reality they were using it for themselves. Verse 13, and this is what you're doing. Listen carefully, because we heard that song today about God's word to you. Making, they did this. They made the word of God of no effect. Wow. God gives us his word to transmit his life, to transmit his revelation, to transmit the power to do things in our lives. The word of God is active, alive, powerful. It has the power to produce what it promises. But the reason that word has so little effect in our lives is because our traditions make the word of God of no effect. So God God can speak something, reveal something, and we have the ability in our lives to make it of no effect. Wow. Wow. This isn't just the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Our traditions, the images of God and who He is that have been embedded in our past, the images that we like to hold on to, because there's wings, ones we like too. Make the Word of God, God's effort to reveal who He is, of no effect. And many such things. The Jews themselves couldn't recognize who he was because he didn't fit the image. He didn't fit the image that they had been trained to believe he would be. That's the first thing. They were looking for a reigning Messiah to come as a conquering king. And they overlooked Isaiah 53 that said he was going to first of all come as a suffering servant. That's the Pharisees. But others did. Here's the subtle part. Not just because they were taught that, but because that's also what they wanted. Because at the time, Israel was on the dominant domination of the worldwide Roman Empire. Rome ruled the world, the known world at that time, at least around the Mediterranean, as far as Persia and as far east as Spain and up as far as as what is now England and even down into Africa. And Rome's Rome's method of rule is they would come in, allow you to keep your own people in authority as long as they kept peace. And, of course, they collected their taxes. And they were really hard on the Jews because the Jews fought back. And so they were greatly oppressed. The temple had outside Roman guards. Their soldiers had gone into the, into the sacred parts of the temple to drive the Jews out at different times, collected terrible taxes from them. So they were waiting. Their holy hope was a Messiah's coming. The scriptures tell us God's sending a deliverer. So not even just the, 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 the Sadducees, 
but the people wanted a God to send his Messiah who was going to break the back of Caesar, who was going to be a, a, a ruling king who was going to dethrone Caesar, overcome him. Even the disciples didn't see this. Because in Acts chapter 1, after he's been raised from the dead, they said, is it now you're going to do that? Is it now you're going to establish your kingdom? He says, it's not for me to give you the signs or times. So here's the problem. They were expecting that kind of Messiah. So when the real Messiah came, listen carefully, in a different appearance, with a different purpose, they couldn't see him for who he was. Even though he did all the miracles. Now, not everybody, obviously. But in order to receive him for who he was, they had to be willing to let go of what they expected and let go, carefully listen, of what they wanted him to be. Because the more subtle danger is we have our own image of who we want God to be. Israel did that back when Moses was on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain talking to God person to person. And down in the camp, it says they got anxious because they couldn't see their leader anymore. So they'll go to Aaron and said, let us build for ourselves an image. But if you read the Hebrew, it doesn't say a, 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 an image of Baal. They built this golden calf and they called it the God who brought them out of Egypt. So they were, thought they were worshiping the God that brought them out of Egypt. It's just the, God, the one they're worshiping is an image they made. Not the God that was on the top of the mountain revealing himself to them. There's a word for that. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is not just having some statue in your house that you honor and bow down to or have it on your... We won't go there about your dashboard. I won't say that. So I didn't say dashboard, did I? Okay. It's also... It's one thing out of ignorance. It's another thing if I want God to be a certain way. Then that colors everything I read in the Word because I'll reject things that show me something different and I'll only look for things that confirm what I want. That is idolatry. It's making your own, it's making your own image of God based on what you want. Now here's where truth comes in. In order for the Holy Spirit to truly show me who He is, I have to be willing to let go of my image. Now, in some cases, it takes work because when an image has been formed through your childhood, you have to work at that. And that's what I do. I work hard at that. Meditating on scriptures of what God's like. But I also open my heart to Him and say, I want to let go of anything that's not consistent with who you really are. I'm willing to see you for who you really are and let go. So when it talks about truth, this first aspect of truth, it means those who worship Him must worship Him in truth. We have to be willing to truly see him as he is, not as we want him to be or as others have told him to be. So our part is an openness of our heart, a willingness. The Holy Spirit's job is then once we're open, 
to fill that openness with the revelation of who he is. John 14. Just to show you how difficult this can be. But the good news is the Holy Spirit is very able as long as we're willing. We'll start in verse 3 and then this is where we'll end today. Jesus is preparing them to go, for him to leave. He says, if I go, I'll prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you, John 14, 3. To myself, where I'm going, you may not, you may, that you may be also. And where I go, you know the way and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. So notice he's saying, you don't really know me. He's lived with them for three and a half years. They've watched him do miracles. They've seen at least one of them walk on water with him. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed multitudes with a boy's lunch and a basket of lunch, at least twice that we know of. They've seen him open blind eyes. They've seen all these things do. They've heard words come from his mouth with authority and power like nobody else has ever said. That was their testimony. And yet he's telling him, you still don't know who I am, really. You know I'm Jesus. You know I'm the Son of God, but you don't really know who I am. Because you're still living with a physical image of me. Oh, this is, oh we're going to run out of time. If you had known me, you would know have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. Don't say show us the Father. And he goes on to explain he who believes in me believes in the Father also. So even his own disciples, he's preparing them here that there's going to be a change in the way they relate to him. They've known him up until this point physically. They've known him through their natural senses. They could tell where Jesus was because they just opened their eyes and they looked. Or they could reach over and touch him. Or maybe what, you know, his scent, his, whatever his natural scent is, they could smell him walk by. They, oh, Jesus is here. And he's preparing them. This is a change coming. You're not going to know me the same way anymore because I'm leaving. But when I go to the Father, I'm going to ask and he's going to send my replacement. We've talked about this before. The Holy Spirit is going to now dwell, been with you, but he's now going to dwell in you. And one of his responsibilities is to reveal to you the glory of my, of my, my glory and the Father's glory that was revealed in me. One of his jobs is to reveal me to you in here, not with your natural senses. Now, it's interesting, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, talking about Christ... And, and, and walking by faith, it says, for we don't know him according to the flesh any longer. In other words, Paul's saying there was a time when the way we recognized him and related to him and knew what he was like was by his outward appearance. 
So they knew the color of his hair, the color of his eyes. They could tell that, oh, that's Jesus. They could recognize him because they acknowledged him. They knew what he was like through their five senses. But he's telling Philip here, but that way you don't really know me. You know what I look like. You know the things I've done. But you don't really know me. But he said, don't be discouraged because although you may know me, don't know me that way now, from now on you won't know me that way anymore. That's what Paul says. How are we going to know him? We're going to know him by the spiritual presence that he is with us. But we have to be willing to let go of the preconceived ideas that people have given to us. And you've got to understand you can do that. If you've been raised with a bad image of a father or whatever it is that's blocking that, you can change that image. I'm living proof of that. By renewing your mind. You've got to begin to take scriptures that tell you who God is. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to them if you're just open. And, but then the work is you've got to meditate on them, not just read them. You've got to talk to yourself. Every time I pray, I start out by praying these things out, who he is to me, what he's like to me. And while I'm doing that, I'm renewing my mind according to God's word. And then the Spirit of God will begin to engage with that and show you things about him. But then we have the other images of what we want God to be. One of the most popular ones today is God's the sugar daddy. God's, God's the, the great vending machine in the sky. That because we have the blessing of Abraham, everything God has is ours. Well, that's true. God's held nothing back. But there's another side to that you don't hear preached very often. Because the other side of that is everything I have is His. So it's a relationship. It's a two-sided relationship. It's a giving and receiving on both sides. And we, we, there are people out there preaching, and I'm not going to get off on this today because I don't have time, a skewed message of the gospel that God is all grace. And because of the grace of God, you can't ultimately do anything wrong. Because of the grace of God and the love of God and the goodness of God, you, nobody is ever going to go to hell. That's universalism. And that's attractive because that's what we'd like it to be. But that's not what the Bible says. So I've got to be willing to let go of that image of God in order to find out what he's really like. Others have an image of God. Oh, he's stern, he's strict, he's stingy. I've got to be willing to let go of that to find out how generous he is. I don't know where you are, but I know this. It's just a matter of being willing to let God show you who he is. Next week, we're going to look at it our side, being willing to be honest about who we are. That'll be fun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We thank you today that you know exactly where we are. We thank you today that you're at work in our lives. Your word says that you're at work in our lives both to will and to do your good pleasure. And so we come to you right now, Father. We thank you for the word that we've heard and we trust that as it's gotten down into our hearts that your spirit will engage with it and begin to work the truth into our lives. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to see those images of our Father that we have that are based on things we've been trained and taught from our past. And open our eyes especially to see those images that we want to see, 
of who God is so that we're willing to allow you to truly introduce us to him as he truly is so that we can worship him in truth. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.